Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, excited that you're here with us and, and, uh, and tuning in online as well. Uh, happy Father's Day again to all the dads. Uh, we've had several new dads uh, over the, the past few weeks while we've been separated from one another. And so a lot of first-time fathers on Father's Day. I uh, hope today will be a, a rich blessing for, for all of you dads. Um, uh, this, this past Wednesday, uh, Crystal and I, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, right? Appreciate that. Um, which, you know, there are probably different reactions uh, to those of you who may be uh, with us in one way or another today. Like for some of you, like 20 years sounds like forever. Uh, for some of you, like 20 years is like nothing. It's like there, there are a number of couples in this church who've been married for twice that long. Uh, I know of at least one couple in our body who's been married for over three times that long. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, 20 years may, may sound a little different from depending where you're coming from. But, but from our perspective, 20 years has, has absolutely just flown by. Uh, I can say I, I'm, I'm really thankful uh, to say that Crystal is still my, my best friend, uh, the love of my life, my favorite person to be with in the world. Uh, I will also be very upfront and tell you we do not have a, uh, a perfect marriage by any stretch. Uh, we've been through a lot of ups and downs and hard times and good times in those 20 years. Uh, we've, we've sinned against one another. Uh, both of us at various points, uh, quite often daily. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a song that we both love from one of our favorite artists, and the, the lyric goes that I'm a piece of work, and uh, she's no walk in the park. That's, that's true of, of both of us. But, but for all of our ugliness here in, in this 20 years, uh, we, we, I think we both would tell you uh, that, that we are more appreciative of one another uh, we're more thankful for one another, and we feel much, much more deeply in, in love with one another than when we began 20 years ago. And I, I pray by God's grace we have many, many more anniversaries to come, but as we get a little bit older and we walk through just the experiences of life that we all walk through, we are increasingly aware that we don't want to take any one of them for granted and, and enjoy each of them as God gives us, and we, we trust by His grace He will keep us enduring in him and give us the strength we need to keep working at our marriage that we will endure and, and be able to endure to the end. Well, I share that, not so much about my anniversary, but, but I think kind of connects to the sort of the heart of what the author of Hebrews is really uh, has in mind here in, in chapter 3. Uh, he has thriving perseverance in view here as we come to these, the, the end of chapter 3. He's fully aware of the reality of the pressures of this world and especially the, the deceitfulness of sin and how that can take our eyes off of Jesus. I can take our eyes off of Jesus. I can close our ears to his voice. He's aware that, that not everyone who seems to start off their life in such a, with such a bang with Christ, right? All sorts of joy, wonderful testimony. He's aware that not all of those wonderful testimonies actually endure to the end. He's aware that, that you know, that, that there are those who begin with such promise who will not hold firm to the end. And so he wants to encourage his readers to persevere in the midst of the hardship that they find themselves in. And he wants to encourage them to finish well. He encourages his original readers. He encourages us today to hold firm to the end. That's what we see Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. I encourage you to turn there on your Bibles. By the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, like you don't own one at all, we do have some free copies we, we would be happy to, to give to you, to take with you today. But uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, I invite you to turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But I exhort but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are thankful for the joy that it is uh, for some of us to be able to be together today, uh, to sit under your word. Lord, we pray, as the author writes here, that we would listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us today. Spirit, we pray that you'd open our ears, you'd open our hearts to receive the word of God, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would continue to shape us by your grace. Lord, that you would enable us to press into to, to you and your grace, that you would enable us to press into one another, um, that we might grow and continue to persevere, holding firm to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. What we see in this passage, you can have a seat. We can see in this passage here both a warning and a call. First, we'll look at the warning here. The warning begins with God's word from the past. When you look at verses 7 through 11, what you have is a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And in Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, uh, it's, you know, basically what the author's doing with that is he's contrasting the faithfulness of Moses that we looked at last week. The faithfulness of Moses with the faithlessness of the people of Israel in the wilderness following the Exodus. Uh, Now, before we get too far into this, there is a very significant observation that we should make right off the bat. Right here, verse 7, it begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then comes the quotation from Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews is is very subtly, uh, yet directly, helping us to have a biblical understanding, a godly perspective of the Bible, a proper view of the Bible. The phrase teaches us that God himself is the author of the Bible. Just as we read in 2 Peter 1.21, it tells us there, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, whenever we read the Bible, whenever we encounter, whenever we hear it read over us, we are encountering the very words of God. And we, we can be confident that God is speaking to us through his word. The other thing we know here is that the the author writes here, he's quoting Psalm 95, something written hundreds of years before this moment. He's quoting this and he says, he writes in the present tense. He says, the Holy Spirit says. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit said a long time ago. He says, the Holy Spirit says. In other words, we're being told that the Bible is the living word of God. That it didn't just speak in the past to the people who were the original readers, uh, the first ones to receive these testaments and these books, but that when we pick up the Bible, when we read it, it is speaking to us in this context, here and now, God is speaking to you and to me. Uh, The book of Hebrews will dive into these truths in, in greater Uh, scope here as we continue in the weeks ahead, but but we shouldn't miss the reality right here in that phrase. The Bible is attesting for itself that it is the living and active Word of God, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in this room online today. 
Right? He's speaking to us. That these words quoted here from Psalm 95 are not just a warning for these first century Jewish Christians whom this book, this letter was written to, but they are in fact a warning for you and for me. And the warning begins with pointing us to a bad example from the past. The unbelief of the Israelites in the wilderness following the Exodus. Uh, and before, if you've been with us before, uh, throughout the course of this year, before we jumped into the book of Hebrews, we, we walked through the book of Exodus earlier this year. And, and, and let's remember kind of what happened in the book of Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, were, were enslaved in Egypt, and, and God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to lead them, and God responded in delivering his people in the most dramatic way. Right? He sends 10 plagues that eventually lead to Pharaoh uh, telling Moses to take the people and leave. Of course, Pharaoh has a change of heart pretty quickly, sends his armies to pursue uh, the, the Israelites in the wilderness. They kind of trap them up against the Red Sea. Uh, and God, who's been leading his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, who moves the pillar behind the people, separating him, separating the armies from the people of Israel. And then has, God, has Moses re- extend his hand, causes this east wind to push back the Red Sea, causing dry land. They cross the Red Sea. Of course, the Egyptian armies try to pursue them. Moses extends his hand again. The waters come crashing down, crushing them. Um, right? So they, they, they see God deliver them in such a dramatic way, right? It's a, the most amazing way. They're singing and worshiping the song of Moses, Exodus 15. Uh, it starts off so amazing, but then it quickly turns bad. The end of Exodus 15, days, like within three days after crossing the Red Sea, being delivered by God, the people are now thirsty. And they're hungry, and they forget what God has just done for them. Right? They begin to question God. They begin to, to doubt God. Uh, their hearts are hardened against God. They, they speak out against God. Time and again, they, they saw God's work in delivering them, his, his mighty works in delivering them, in providing water from the rock, in providing manna from heaven, delivering them through the Red Sea. But again and again, they forget their hearts were hardened They disbelieved. And so God made it so that entire generation, over 600,000 men plus the women of that generation, were not able to enter his rest. Only two from that generation, two men, Caleb and Joshua, right, were able to enter into the rest of the promised land, the inheritance that God had promised Abraham. The Israelites failed As a people, they failed to hold firm to the end because they failed to keep their hearts and minds centered on God in the midst of the hardship that they faced. But the Holy Spirit is saying this to those first century Jewish Christians and he's, he's saying this to you and me. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For a hard heart leads in the end to missing out on God's rest. Now, God's rest here in in this passage is referring, for the the Israelites in Exodus, is referring to the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But what is the land of Canaan, the land of promise? It's an echo of the Garden of Eden, and it's a foreshadowing of the new creation that we will experience when Christ returns to usher in the fullness of his glory, to renew and restore all things. These, these first century believers uh, facing intense persecution were being warned not to harden their hearts, to not follow up a great start, right? A powerful proclamation of faith, a powerful experience of rescue in Christ with an unbelieving heart that turns away from Jesus and loses out on the rest that is to be found only in him. And this is a warning for you and me. So even as I can stand here today and think back and look back on almost eight years of the existence of this church, only eight years, I sadly can see faces and names of people that that come immediately to mind, people who had a brilliant beginning, a powerful start, a powerful experience it seemed in the moment of God's grace, bold proclamation of testimonies, 
public testimony of, of baptisms in those eight years. Yet sadly, some of those great beginnings were short-lived. I don't pretend to know myself. I, I don't know the soul, right? Only God knows the heart. So I don't pretend to know for certain the eternal uh, standing and destiny of, of any human being. But what I can tell you is, is that from an outward experience there, there, there seemed to be no confidence when some of those stories to affirm that there was real faith in Christ, that, that, that there were hard hearts that turned away from Jesus and his church with no evidence that there was any sort of real ongoing relationship with Christ. Like Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, right? The seed that, that fall, fell among the rocks. It sprang up quickly, but it had no root and it was scorched and it was gone. How does this happen? How, how is this possible? Well, we, we find a clue really in the heart of this passage, which is verses 12 and 13. It says there, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me leave the elect standard version that we like to use here, uh, and read this to you from the NIV. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 in the NIV, NIV says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So in that, what we see is this, this negative progression that this passage is really warning us about. That sin can, at times, then lead to an unbelieving heart. And that an unbelieving heart can eventually, possibly, lead to turning away from God. And then in turning away from God, that can eventually lead to a hardened heart. Sin is deceitful. Right? It's deceitful. It distorts our perspective. Um, you know, think on the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam was so deceived by his sin in the Garden that he even dared to shift the blame, not only to his wife, the woman, right, Eve, but, but even onto God, right? The, the, it's the woman that you God gave to me. She's the one, and you're, ultimately, you are responsible for what I've done. Sin is deceitful. It can quickly lead to an unbelieving heart. Like, right, so we, we give in to sin. We, we, we fall into a pattern of sin. And what do we seek to do? We seek to minimize and justify our sin. Well, well surely God doesn't mean that this is sinful. I mean, that's sinful, this thing that I'm not doing, but, but this, is, this is okay. An unbelieving heart leads us to turn away from God. Our hearts and minds are no longer focused on the goodness of God, of his, his glory, but on the sinful, selfish desires that reside within us until our hearts are hardened and you are a full-on apostate, right? You abandon the faith. You renounce and reject Jesus and his word completely. This is the warning. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't, don't let sin progress to an unbelieving heart, to turning away from God, to a, to a hardened heart, and a full-on rejection of the faith. But this, this warning is addressed to self-professing Christians. How is that possible? How can this happen to a believer? We'll get to more of that in a second, but, th but think about this. Do you, do you know what this is exposing? It's exposing the lie of thinking that I know myself better than anyone else. It's exposing the lie that you know yourself better than anyone else. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I sure like to think 
that I know myself better than anyone else. To be completely honest, oftentimes I like to think that I know just about everything better than anyone else. Uh, so, but, but the truth is, right, uh, sadly, I don't know everything. Um, and, and this shows me that I don't even really know myself fully. That you don't even know yourself fully. My view of self, your, your view of yourself is, is pocketed by blindness. And that blindness often leads me to sin, leads you to sin, and it can lead to an unbelieving heart, especially when my blindness is confronted, when someone else kind of points out that blind spot, that weakness that I fail to see in myself. I refuse to believe what I'm hearing about myself in that moment. And that can lead me to turn away from God. Because what do I do when I think I know myself better than anyone else and someone else is, is challenging me, confronting sin, coming from an area of my blindness? Well, I don't believe them, right? And so I respond by defending myself and or attacking them right? Oh, so you think I'm selfish? Well, let me tell you about how you're selfish. How many times has that happened throughout the course of 20 years of marriage, right? Like we've had that conversation numerous times, numerous times, right? Because I, you don't want to receive in that moment the truth that you can't see about yourself. And so you defend or you attack I'm effectively in that moment turning away from God and putting my trust in what I can make happen and in my view of myself. And the warning is that too much of this can lead to a heart that is completely hardened. Unable to receive needed correction from the Holy Spirit. Unable to receive needed correction from a brother or sister in Christ. Unable to rest, to repent and rest in the grace of Jesus. You and I, we need to hear this warning and understand what it means. It means that the assumption that you know yourself better than anyone else is completely false. It's false because your view of yourself is pocketed by blindness. There are parts of yourself that you cannot possibly see and you need the help of the Holy Spirit. You need the help of brothers and sisters to help you see those things, to help you in your understanding. You, you may not be able to recognize. Let me give you some examples here. You may not be able to recognize that, that your understanding of sex and sexuality has been corrupted and co-opted by the culture. You may not be able to see that, that you have been deceived by sin to a point where you don't believe what God in his word has to say about sex, that it's reserved, it's a gift reserved for the context of marriage between one man and one woman. You need to be careful that you are not so deceived that you start to turn away from God and have your heart hardened. Or what about the, the ongoing conversation in our culture about race? Our responses to the recent killings, murdering of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, numerous others, sometimes expose the reality that as self-professing Christians, we have, been, we have given in to the idolatry of identity politics and been deceived by our sin. And I mean that on all sides, not picking on one side here. And been deceived by our sin and possibly even experienced somewhat of a hardening of the heart. Let me explain, right? And, and I hope that you'll give me time here to, to fully explain. But, but for some, any mention of racism, especially when we say things like systemic racism, which is a fact, right? It exists. That's not a political statement, Right? There, are, there are a lot of things, like go read and learn about redlining 
and, and how that affects things and affects, you know, uh, household wealth. Go, go learn about how school systems are funded and, and what happens in neighborhoods where the property values are low and what kind of education is available and the systemic oppression that results from that. It's a real thing. It's not a political stance. But, but for some, any mention of that or, or police brutality, we, we say that, right, leads some to immediately responds with things like, Racism's gone, right? We, we've moved past that. Like it ended with, you know, uh, some of us who were really foolish, right? We, we, it ended with the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, actually, no. Uh, that came in 1863, and the, the final slaves weren't actually freed until 1865, June 19th. Juneteenth, we just uh, celebrated that on Friday. Or it ended with the Civil War, the end of the Civil War. Or it ended with the Civil Rights Movement. Or, or it ended with the presidential election of Barack Obama. There is no more racism, Or we'll say things like, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. There's a reality that every one of us has bias, right? That we need to examine and, and have our brothers and sisters help us examine. I'm not a racist. I shouldn't have to apologize for the past sins of others. But the biblical response to what's happening in our culture right now is to weep with those who weep. Not to ask for justification, not to ask for clarification, not to like, yeah, but what's the story here? No, to mourn with those who mourn. Not to try to point out all the other injustices that exist in the world, and, and there are many, but to enter in as a loving ambassador of Christ, to just weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. You don't have to agree, uh, and I would say, and this is me speaking for myself, I don't, don't think you should agree with every full political agenda of everyone who's marching in protest around the country right now. Uh, but, but we absolutely should acknowledge the injustice. We absolutely should care. We absolutely should weep with those who weep and cry out for justice alongside of them. And in our theology, uh, this whole thing about sins of the past that we're not a part of, do, do we not understand that we are all marked by the sin of Adam, whose sin we were not present for, yet we all share in the guilt of? We all are marked by. Right? His sin has imparted to us a sinful nature that we share the guilt of. Now, we cannot erase the sinful, you know, racist past of our nation. And we all need to understand that the weeds of that racism are so deeply embedded in the soil of this nation that, that there's a lot to untangle and uproot. And we do need to wrestle with the implications of systems of injustice that exist in our nation that need to be reformed. But the first step of repentance for many of us is simply to care, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn to cry out for justice. And the next step is to actually live in real, genuine, mutual friendship from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue as our context allows. To break bread together. We may have to wait for a pandemic to subside a little bit, but some of those things might be worth the risk now. But let me go to the other end of the spectrum. Let me, be, let me be balanced here because uh, I think there's issues on all sides of this. While, while acknowledging and repenting of racism and systemic oppression, the right response is not to hate all police. The right response is not to hate every police officer. As Christians, we understand that people are sinful. Uh, we understand that we are not going to create utopia here and now in this world on our own. We, like we're, we are not going to be capable of that. That's not going to be a thing. Uh, we need some sort of policing. We need some sort of, of that. But, so we shouldn't hate all police. Instead, we should be for better policing. I think that's a more appropriate response. That clearly there, there's some pro problems there. I'm willing to acknowledge as a pastor that there are pastors who are con artists, who are duplicitous, who are insincere, who are in it 
for the wrong reasons, who abuse congregants and their congregations, we should understand that there, there, are, there are bad apples in every bunch, right? And we should be for better policing. But we should encourage the good men and women who do that work in a good and just way, including several law enforcement officers, the law enforcement officers who are a part of this body of believers here. They need our encouragement. They need our prayers. They need our love too. We can't be deceived by the idol of politics on either side of the aisle is what I'm trying to say. As Christians, we should be able to hold our political convictions with grace towards those who disagree with us in some of those convictions, who vote differently from us at election time. And we also should have the discernment to understand where certain leaders, right, and certain issues are flat out wrong and sinful. And and we shouldn't be so entrenched in our idolatry of our political ideology that we cannot be awake and our eyes open to see that and call it what it is. Right? Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. You understand? If he had an email account, I'm pretty sure he'd probably have some people accusing him of being a Marxist, and he'd have some people accusing him at times of, of creating single-issue uh, conservative voters. Uh, be careful, right, if your heart is too hard to simply weep with those who weep. Be careful if your heart is so hard that you hate every police officer. In response, don't fall into the knee-jerk reactions that our culture wants to, to feed us. Have discernment to understand that, that no matter where you tend to vote, there are problems on all sides. There's, there's a warning here for all of us. I, and I know some of you are like, well, or, uh, this is a, you know abuse of the text. Well, I think it's absolutely a, a great application of this text. Because I see in some of the conversations, not, not many in this body, but in some of the conversations that I see, uh, social media, there's a hardness of heart that quickly enters into some of these conversations. And we need to be willing to enter into one another's lives in love with grace. To understand that when somebody posts something that we disagree with, they're not just an ideology, they're not just a, a perspective but they're a person, they're an image bearer. They may be sinful, but they're an image bearer of God that we need to enter into with love and grace to have the conversations that we need to have to care for one another. There's a warning here for all of us. It can be applied out in lots of different directions here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Understand that your understanding of yourself is pocketed by blindness. There are parts of yourself that you can't see and that you need others' help and understanding. This is true for you, for me, for all of us. Heed the warning. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But notice there's not just a warning here. There's also a call. What's the call? Well, look, look again, verses 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a call to hold firm to the end. That's the call. But there's both a personal and a communal aspect to this call. Personally, there's a call to take care. Take care of yourself. Take care, brothers, sisters. To be aware that the sinful, unbelieving heart that can be seen in the Israelites during their 40 years in the wilderness can be in you. It can be in me. In any one of us, that we could be kept from entering into the glorious rest in Christ because we rebel against the God who loves us. This, that sinful nature resides in all of us. It resides in all of us. Now, I believe in the perseverance of the saints, right? I'm Reformed, I'm a Calvinist, 
That's a four-letter word for some of you. Uh, you know, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I, I'm not backing down from my, my theology and my understanding of the doctrines of grace here. I think it's clear that the Bible teaches us that Christians can and should have an assurance of their salvation, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. I believe that. That is true. So how do these things reconcile? Verse 14 is essentially saying the same thing, just from a different perspective. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, in the perfect tense here, meaning our belief that began in the past and continues, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, if a believer in Christ does not persevere to the end, it shows that they were never really truly a believer in Christ in the first place. As John himself writes in 1 John 2.19, talking about people who left the church, rebelled against the church, renounced the faith, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They're not believers. They've renounced the faith. This text isn't denying assurance or perseverance of saints, but it's pointing out the reality that, that while we're saved by grace, we, 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 we're active, right? Our, our salvation will show itself in this active faith where we have a responsibility to work with the Spirit in applying that salvation to, to every aspect of our being. As we read in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That isn't denying that God is the one who begins the work of salvation and who it's God who carries that work of salvation on to completion, right? Paul writes that in Philippians chapter one, same letter that he's saying this. But it's saying that in the one that God saves and sustains, there is an active partnership, an active partnership in living and growing in that saving faith that gives testimony to the work of God's grace in your life. So take care, brothers and sisters. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Personally, here is the call. Verse 15, once again, Psalm 95, 7 and 8 is quoted for the second time. It'll be quoted for a third time in chapter 4. Means there's some emphasis here that we need to hear this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is a call to listen to the voice of God. It's a call for the, that the Christian, for the Christian, that you must be privately, personally, in the word of God, listening to God, listening to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you through God's word. You must read the Bible. You must meditate on the Bible for yourself. Not just coming on Sundays to hear somebody else read it and talk about it to you, but, but digging into it, mining it for yourself, planting its truth deep into your own heart and life. You need to listen to the word. You, you must believe it to trust that it, that it is God's word, that it is true. Most importantly, you must believe what it says about who God is, who you are, and what God in Christ has done for you. You must regularly abide in the truth that God is holy and you are sinful. But that Jesus came and he lived the sinless life that you cannot. And he died the death that you deserve for your sins on his cross. And he was raised victorious defeating Satan, sin, and death, setting you free from them. That you, through faith in Christ, have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, beloved children of God. That that is who you are. You need to listen to that. You need to believe it. You need to live it. To live it. To live as a child of God. To live in the reality of what that means to be God's beloved child, to live in, in obedience to his word, to, to live as an ambassador of Christ and his love and his grace and his mercy 
in your relationships, in your work, in your, your living in your neighborhood, in every aspect of your being and living. That's the personal aspect of the, of the call. But this personal aspect is, is, is really inseparable from the communal aspect that we see here. For you were not saved into this exclusive, individual, uh, personal, just you and Jesus relationship for the rest of time. But you were saved into a family, the church, with lots of brothers and sisters. Lots of brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the capital C Universal Church. He did that both so we might display the gospel in our relationships, the way we love and serve and forgive and extend his grace back and forth to one another, but also because we need each other to live out the gospel, to live as God's people. There is an explicit call here to communal life, to community life. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who does not belong to a local church, who is not a part of a local body of believers. And you know what? That's, that's really good news. It's really good news that Jesus plants you into the body of Christ, that he plants the body of Christ into you to, to see into your life. It's good news. This, this communal call is, is not just so we can simply share a meal and discuss a passage of Scripture either. Or, or have some friends over on a nice summer evening for a cookout. Those are great things. We should do those things. But, 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 but that's not really the fullness of the community life that we've been called to live. The context of verse 13, exhort one another every day. The context of that is this progression of being hardened by sin and the deceitfulness of sin. This isn't a call to only tell one another how wonderful we are. It's a call to fiercely love each other. Enough that we will both encourage the God-glorifying things that we see in one another, that we will be each other's biggest cheerleader. As we see God's grace bearing fruit in our lives, we'll say, that is awesome, what I see the Lord doing in you. But as well, we'll love each other fiercely enough to speak the truth in love as we confront the blind spots of sin that are in, in each of our lives. It's a call here to live what Paul Tripp calls intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. We need a few more hyphens, I think, but I love it. Um, we need to love one another and love Jesus enough to be intentionally intrusive into each other's lives. We can't be content to just say, well, that's just how she is. That's just how he is. That's just the way they are. So we'll just go on ignoring it. We cannot be content to say that with each other. You can't be content to say that with me. We have to speak the truth in love. Now, the rest of this will unpack that it needs to be in love. But we have to, to help one another see the blind spots that we all have to point one another to the grace that we have in Jesus. There's a reality that, that oftentimes we do not speak the truth into one another's lives. Not because, oh, we love them so much, we just don't want to hurt them. No, the reality is, is we don't speak the truth into one another's lives because we love ourselves too much. And we're more worried about what it might cost us to actually confront and love. That's why we don't say anything. But you have to love Jesus more than you love yourself. And you have to love your brother or your sister more than you love yourself. You and I, we have to be intentionally intrusive that sin might be exposed so that it can be confessed, so that it can be repented of, so that, that we might live in greater grace and greater joy, honoring Jesus more and more with our lives. It's intentionally intrusive and it's Christ-centered in that it flows out of a love for Christ and his bride, the church. It's centered on Christ's glory, his 
being lifted up, right? It's centered on his purposes, not on our agenda, not on our comfort, not on our approval. It's intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, and grace-driven. This kind of community, uh, this kind of community life must be done in the spirit of grace because of God's grace. We must be reminded again and again that, that we can receive loving confrontations of our sin because we are not defined by our sin. You realize that the cross of Christ has already completely outed you? That you, are, you and I, we're not as marvelous as we like to think we are or we like to project ourselves as being. And the cross of Christ has already exposed that. It has completely outed us. But it also tells us that we are not defined by our failures, by our sin, by our falling short. But we are defined by the blood of Christ, his righteousness. We're not defined by our blind spots. We're defined by the righteousness of God. We are children of God. That is who we are. Scriptures tell us that again and again and again. So we can receive anything knowing that that doesn't change who we are. It will only help us to live more in light of the reality of who we truly are in Christ. And our speaking into others, our speaking into others about their blind spots must be grace-driven as well. Because as we enter any one of those conversations, we know we are entering in as a person who has their own blind spots. A person who is wrestling with their own sin. And so we, we come to our brother or sister humbly, in love, with a desire to see them kept safe from a hardened heart. Not a desire to show how wrong they are and how right we are. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Because the goal is not for you to tell me what a jerk I am. The goal is not for me to tell you what a jerk I think you are. Right? The goal is redemption. The goal is redemption. The goal is the glory of God. The goal is the fullness of life and joy and peace in Christ. That in every way we would increasingly, increasingly display the love of Christ and the way of Christ for everyone around us. You and I are called to live in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. This means that our community groups must be much more. They got to be more than simply surface talk about a passage of the scripture and praying for your sick aunt. I'm not saying we can't pray for your sick aunt. I'm not trying to be a jerk. But I am saying that the real thing that you and I need in those moments is the love of Christ and the love of one another to help us see our blind spots, to help each other fight for gospel growth and increasing holiness, to help each other not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that there's real spiritual warfare taking place. Right? We, we need to join in that with each other. And this will require two things of, of all of us. First, it will require the, the humility of approachability. That you and I have to be someone who understands our identity is in Christ, and so we welcome we welcome the love of our brother and sister to press into us. Even when we don't receive it well initially, that we welcome it and we know that it's for our good. Second, it will require the courage of loving honesty. The humility of approachability, the courage of loving honesty. That we will love our brother and sister enough that we'll care about their soul more than we care about our, our approval, their approval of us to speak the truth in love. We must love Christ enough, we must love each other enough to not allow each other to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Only the gospel will enable us to do those things, to have that sort of humility, that kind of courage. Only the gospel will enable us to live in that sort of intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. So today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Heed the warning, respond to the call, press into Jesus, 
press into his word, press into the people of God to one another that Jesus might sustain you and hold you firm to the end. The Lord's Supper gives us a beautiful and powerful reminder of all, Christ that, all that Christ has done and an opportunity to commune with him, to listen to his finished work, to hear it, to hear what it says about who we are now, that, that, to believe it, right? To rest in it, that we might know that our identity is secure in Christ, helping us to grow in the humility and courage that we need to help sustain us by his grace. Believers, in just a moment, I invite you to share in this meal. To, if, if, if you're willing to take it together as a body, we'll, we'll walk through that in just a moment. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians, right? for those who have put their hope in Jesus. And so as, as believers are sharing in this meal, this is an invitation for you to respond to the gospel, to respond to the finished work of Christ with, with saving faith. Uh, we will have some pastors and prayer responders, I think, out here as we continue to sing in a moment. Uh, to pray. If anybody needs prayer, needs encouragement today, we're here for you in that. But let's pray. Let's prepare to share in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for uh, this meal. Thank you after 15 weeks and 14 Sundays uh, that today, those of us who are able to be here uh, can share in this meal together. Search our hearts. Examine our hearts, Lord. Expose the sin and unbelief that resides within us. And move us by your grace. Let us hear your voice to move with repentance and faith to cling to Christ anew and afresh, to renew our covenant of faith with you as we share in this meal. We pray in Jesus' name. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, um, took bread. Uh, I'm sure it was like this in a cup with cellophane. Uh, not at all. But uh, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant of my, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, I'll try not to spill this all over myself. So that'd be really embarrassing. Um, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gracious provision of your Son. Thank you. Thank you for your patience with us, your loving pursuit of us, even when our hearts were hardened by sin. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts to receive the grace of Jesus and to abide in him by faith. Jesus, grow us in your grace. Make us humble and courageous. Help us to live as an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Help us to love you, to love one another, that we might encourage one another daily, that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sustain us by your grace and hold us firm to the end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.